This is the Concast, the podcast about the Indian Constitution, the Supreme Court, and beyond. Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Concast. In this episode, we have Abhinav Sekri, the criminal trial lawyer and the author of the fantastic blog Proof of Guilt, back with us for a second round. Abhinav, thanks for joining me once again. How was your week? Oh, manic. Then <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to start by saying sorry because I didn't intend to um, drag you back here one month after you were last year. It reminds me a bit of... You just need more friends. That's the only answer <laughs> that I can give you. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, but no, I, I, was, I was just thinking, I, you know, when I used to live in the UK, the haircuts used to cost 14 pounds. And, um, and after I'd gotten a haircut uh, and, and paid that money that really stung, the Baba would say, see you soon. And I'd be like, I hope I don't have to see you again soon. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm hoping I wouldn't have to see you again here soon, but but here you are. So you know because that's what that's what we need to do given what's happened this past month. Um, so you know, we'll, we'll talk about, uh, about two things in this uh, podcast. The first is of course the judgment of the Supreme Court in case called Vijay Madanlal Chaudhary versus Union of India, popularly now known as the PMLA case. And then we'll talk about uh, Muhammad Zubair. Um, the, I mean, the PMLA case, right? So you've pointed out in your in your two blogs, and I recommend everyone to read those two blog posts, that in many ways, this judgment does not break new ground in the sense that it carries forward a long and proud Supreme Court tradition of effacing procedural safeguards and individual rights in the context of socioeconomic offenses. Um, and I guess if it was a case of that kind, we'd probably not hear much about it, just as you know, many people don't know about that entire line of cases you talk about. But the only reason why everyone's talking about this case is because as of now, everyone knows what the ED is, right? Everyone in India, whether they're lawyers or they're not lawyers, the the two letters ED, we all know what the ED is. And, you know, there are obvious reasons for that, which you don't need to go into here. Um, I think that's actually what makes it perhaps, a, you know, important time to both discuss this case, but also given the interest in it to talk about how it's in a certain sense part of a certain tradition in the Supreme Court about criminal law and the Constitution. Um, so let me start by just, you know, as as you say in your blog, the PMLA is a law that is designed to catch what is known as the proceeds of crime, right? Uh, so can you maybe just briefly summarize for us what is this idea of the proceeds of crime and what has led to there being a lot to deal with that? Yeah, uh, sure, Gautam. So... The judgment in Vijay Madanlal Chaudhary actually spends a lot of time explaining to us, you know, the the international impetus behind criminalizing money laundering. And uh, I would also urge, like, if anyone's interested, there are a couple of really nice books out there by this uh, professor called Peter Aldridge from the UK. So they're very accessible. That's why, I mean, there are other books as well on money laundering, but these were really accessible reads that, you know, tell you just how peculiar this entire concept is. 
just to like cut to the chase money laundering and the the famous story used to be that the word came because al capone the famous gangster used to invest all of his uh, or actually hide all of his money made from his various criminal enterprises and laundromats in the us so the idea became that he is laundering his money from black to white and ultimately projecting it as if all those you know tainted assets are actually legitimate hence the word money laundering so it came up at the international stage in the 1980s when again the us led movement happened across the world to try and end drug cartels right so the idea became how can you effectively stop these people you go after their money it was actually drug cartels rather than terrorism that was the first real international impetus behind let's say going after the money so you had that in the late 80s you had the two conventions and then it became a un led initiative over the 90s and then countries who became party to the uncac and two other conventions that are there it became sorry, evident the uncac is what uh, the uncac there is a convention against corruption so that's that right but there is another convention whose name i'm forgetting again all of these details are there in the preamble to the pmla itself so right. when the bill was first instru- uh, introduced in india in 1999 it it largely happened to deal with those international commitments that india had to pass mm. an independent legislation for money laundering because earlier you had these so uh, what is the idea right the idea is to go after the money now there are various ways in which one can go after the money that is generated as a result of criminal activity so one you could wait for a conviction to happen and then you know confiscate that property all of that used to happen in india but it used to happen for a select nature of crime so this idea that okay after con- after conviction i can move in for your property that's something that was there since the 1970s with a law called the safema the it's a really long name so i'd rather not do it here so that's one <laughs> angle the other angle is okay even during a trial i should have the ability to confiscate ill gotten proceeds and this is actually an idea that can be traced back to a 1944 criminal law amendment ordinance funnily enough still valid even though it was an ordinance which basically again dealt with only a select few kinds of crimes largely property offenses and corruption offenses and allowed for the attachment and subsequent forfeiture after conviction of any money that could be legitimately shown to have been the result of you engaging in those crimes so these are two you know examples and like for whoever really is interested one of the oldest examples that we found and incidentally it even finds mention in the judgment is actually an act called the forfeiture act of 1857 which was again something that was passed way back when to take over the properties of people who had participated in the mutiny right and you know so this idea that we can go after the property is there for a really really long time it's not a new idea but where we get new ideas is money laundering as an offense now what india did in response to the international obligation was to create the money laundering act that does two things right it defines an of it creates a new offense of money laundering and contrary to your the intuitive thinking on money laundering which is that you project tainted assets as untainted it does it in a much more technical way 
so that's number one and that became one of the big issues in the judgment itself which is the definition under section 3 of the act and mm. its convoluted phrasing the second thing that and related to this is that the money laundering act independent of let's say the safema or the criminal law amendment ordinance also provided for a mechanism for attachment and eventual confiscation of what are the proceeds of crime identified in a case so you have this omnibus sort of structure come in it was passed in 2002 actually brought into effect only in 2005 and subsequently it has undergone tremendous amendment largely again as a result of the international obligations so india uh, is also party to reviews of its money laundering initiatives by the financial action task force again a, a global body that does country mm. review so a lot of the amendments to the money laundering act have happened after the country review has happened and country reviews i believe happened like first happens after 5 years and the second happens after 5 or 10 years so uh, i think india is up for its next one in 2023 i might be wrong about it or it might have happened recently but so you know it's it's two so bottom line three things one money laundering offense in india and frankly across the world as an independent concept largely as a result of a global initiative second money laundering as it is defined in the money laundering act is not how you know you might commonly understand it over a dinner table conversation it's a very technical thing and three a lot of the amendments have again been as a result of the global initiatives right so i think that's a good segue into getting right into the section 3 right which is the definition of the offense and and um, and the court's interpretation of that and um, so i mean i just read out the the section which says uh, offense of money laundering whosoever directly or indirectly attempts to in indulge or knowingly assists or knowingly is a party or is actually involved in any process or activity connected with the proceeds of crime including its concealment um, possession acquisition or use and, and projecting or claiming it as untainted property shall be guilty of offence of money laundering uh, so one one point that you have often made in your in your blog pieces is that this is a very broad definition terms like directly or indirectly effectively make you know it, the 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 requirement of having a causal link uh, between the uh, actual offense that you have committed as a result of which you have gotten those proceeds of crime that you are then laundering is a very attenuated kind of link and that makes a lot of like your property fair game uh, so you have made that point a few times but i think with respect to this judgment there are two or three things right um, so one is that so of course as 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 you said um proceeds of crime envisages the existence of a crime first of all right um and and what crimes as such you know are brought within this law whose proceeds shall then be subject to this money laundering law that is set out in the schedule right so certain offenses um that are independently defined in say the indian penal code or elsewhere they come in the schedule and if you have committed one of those offenses then the proceeds of crime from that particular offense is subject to this law is that broadly correct yeah it's broadly correct and actually in vijay madanlal choudhary they very emphasize that link between the you know the engaging in a scheduled offense 
and yeah. the fact that the proceeds of crime must not be property that is simply involved in the commission of that offence so to give you an example let's say if i am uh, using a vehicle to commit a robbery so then that vehicle is not the proceeds of crime but it will be yeah. the the money that i robbed from the bank so that is the property that i mm-hmm. derive or obtain as a result of the scheduled offence yeah so that is what is the procedure yeah. of crime and that is what and any dealing with that practically anything to do with that if you use it possess it do anything with it that will yeah. attract the offence of money laundering and therefore the money laundering act right right so i think that that now we have that clear there are there are three issues that arise substantively with section 3 and the broader act that came up for decision in this judgment first is that can any offense be brought within the scope of the act um, that was one second is that for offenses committed before this act was passed the so called proceeds of crime um, that flow from those offenses are they subject to this act and the third is that uh, when it uses the word and between acquisition or use and projecting or claiming does that is that like a, a disjunct or is that a conjunct condition right so you need to satisfy both um you know the possession concealment whatever as well as projecting or claiming it as untainted or is one of the two sufficient so these are the three kind of substantive issues um, that were litigated uh, in this case and and it's one by one right so first scheduled offenses right so as i understand it the argument was by the petitioners that look uh, money laundering is by the legislative policy itself very serious offense it's meant to act is meant to be used in exceptional cases so there has to be a certain kind of proportionality in deciding which offenses to add to the schedule which will then become part of this of this of this act so i mean for example you can't say that causing say a simple theft or something I, i steal a pencil and then that brings me under the ambit of this act there has to be some kind of threshold of gravity right um, and to this the court said that no this is purely a question of policy and uh, and we can't interfere with that uh, so is, is that broadly what was argued and what the holding was and and you know and your thoughts on that yeah so broadly uh, i think you quite succinctly summarized what was the argument and what the holding was and i think i would again like to emphasize the, how the court decided that it was beyond reproach you know this legislate so called legislative policy that was at play that it's it's not even something that the court was willing to question is what was slightly uh, grating as as some you know dealing with a judgment from a constitutional court uh thoughts on that would i think that the nuance in the argument was lost slightly and it's not an easy argument right because it's frankly not been made that often but mm-hmm. at the same time it's it's a really important argument because it actually mm-hmm. and the court and i think the point at least reading the judgment the point doesn't seem to come across the point actually links to how the court and you know the government emphasize on the seriousness of money laundering 
and how there is a phrase in the judgment at, at times where you know these are offenses that are going to shake the financial foundations of the of you know the economy so on and so forth so these are not random things these are when we think of money laundering at least prosecuting money laundering it's not it's not uh, like you said if i steal a pencil and then that pencil becomes proceeds of crime so obviously there is enforcement discretion and you would assume that the government doesn't do that but ultimately that's not how the law works right you don't the same way the accused cries horse about there being some sort of abuse the, the the court says that look that's not how it is you have to go by the law similarly here simply because the government says oh look we won't abuse that ought not to mm. be the consideration either so yeah. here i think uh, i think the challenge was really significant and if you look at the history of the money laundering act in fact when the act first came out and i think this the the changes happened in 2013 and actually slightly earlier actually this change happens in 2009 10 again so the the problem with understanding the money laundering act is that there's so many amendments that have happened over the last 17 odd years that uh, you know it's become a little difficult to keep track of when this happened and how this happened so let me just tell you one important thing and then we can move on from this one important thing is that at, at one point in time there used to be actually a threshold identified within the schedule itself so what i mean by that is if you were to turn to the schedule today it has part a part b in terms of you know the kinds of offenses that are there what it doesn't have today is a monetary limit in terms of okay if you commit an offense that is identified under part a then the proceeds of crime identified ought to be let's say crossing a certain limit for the money laundering act to get triggered hmm. does that make sense yeah so that 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 used to be the position so by way of a specific amendment again obviously pursuant to fatf regulations this was mm. taken away so you had this but the fatf suggested that no this this monetary linkage in and of itself is not the best idea and so then this was taken away so ultimately what are the reason behind you know it not being such a good idea etc there is a lot on that within the fatf reports that again the court doesn't consider here i don't know how much was of it was raised because i was not there on all days of the argument in court i was there on some mm. days i we mm. were also part of one of the teams who had made some arguments but not this line of argument so i don't know exactly what all got argued on this point but ultimately it i think it was a very important point where hopefully in the future it does get considered because like you said right so if if it is totally beyond reproach then you can simply lump everything into the schedule and then allow the ed to go ahead yeah so i guess i mean i guess like i've have two yeah so i i just have two questions for you on this right so one is that you know is is, is the effect of the judgment now that if the legislature so wants they can effectively bring every offense defined in every law under the pmla and they effectively make the code of criminal procedure and all its safeguards such as they are redundant in indian law because now everything is will be under the pmla's what you call sui generis or autonomous set of procedures that don't have any of those safeguards and we'll come to that a little later so that's one question And the second question is, as a matter of constitutional law, right? Um, given that the PMLA 
departs those procedural safeguards in having strict bail requirements you know in making those confessions admissible and all that doesn't that then trigger a requirement of proportionality with respect to the offenses that you bring in under the act so shouldn't the court have applied proportionality such as it is in indian law uh, to say that look if you're going to dispense with all these critical uh, procedural safeguards then you'd better have like a very very high threshold for that such as you know i mean the argument made by justice nariman before um, that okay if it's terrorism and you know okay i'm not agreeing with the argument but right but but okay if it's terrorism then you can have strict bail conditions don't have say the twin test for bail for every offense right then it doesn't make any sense so i should should the court have kind of considered the argument that the more you take away safeguards under criminal procedure the higher the threshold has to be to justify taking away those those safeguards no absolutely right and i think this then links to that separate issue of section 45 and bail where ultimately mm-hmm. throughout the act then there is a proportionality analysis that ought to be there if we are let's say agreeing with the legislature that you know money laundering is serious but we are also agreeing with the legislature that not all money laundering because of the wide scope of the offense we can easily imagine and conceive of situations that are not as serious as let's say like you said where money laundering is engaged as a result of terrorist activities so on and so forth so when that kind of a distinction is so easily like apparent on the face of it it was like the, the a proportionality analysis in terms of you know understanding the challenge to the schedule and we can maybe come to it later but understanding the challenge to the application of twin conditions it it had to be there but the proportionality analysis is something that is completely absent from the from the judgment when it comes to issues like this and the the problem is if you read the judgment itself it's not it's not really apparent that that is the kind of argument that was made and i again which is why i'm saying that uh, people mm. who would have been in court could be better able to you know make that uh, point about just exactly how the point was pitched because if the point mm. is pitched to say and when maybe we discuss article 20 sub clause 3 and section 50 of the pmla i'll be able to give you this example then but if the point is pitched that you know the provision mm. itself is bad no you know no prisoners taken a court mm. may not be willing to do that right and because mm. there mm. even if you look at the judgments prior to this on section uh, on the twin conditions idea there are there is too much to say that okay you know you ought not to blanketly just throw these away but which is where the, the pitching of the argument matters so much as to how it was done and whether it was laced with that kind of proportionality analysis that you mentioned so reading the judgment itself it it doesn't seem to be that apparent but again i don't know how faithful right. a reproduction of the arguments because again so in these are the the arguments are reproduced in the judgment but there are often as a result of the written submissions that were supplied in terms of oral argument and you know advocacy as it is happening in court it that yeah. doesn't really get captured unless you were in the room or you have like you know reference to a live stream or something so yeah but you're right in terms of how maybe still there is some hope that a future court does go down the the path of adopting a proportionality analysis and maybe trimming down some of the pmla provisions to size 
Yeah, I mean, because this is, and I think your answer basically kind of refer, it ties back into the point you make in your blog, which is that in this case, substance and procedure are very intricately connected. And in a certain sense, there's this almost schizophrenia running through the PMLA, which is that when you look at the procedural uh, parts of it, they are so draconian that you expect that that uh, they would be applying to really, really serious offenses. Then you look at the substantive provisions and you see it could apply to anything, you know, and the schedule. And then you find that the court has upheld both. So on the one hand, the court is saying all these restrictive procedural conditions are fine because money laundering is so severe an offense that your normal protection should not apply. And the court is also saying, but at the same time, it's totally discretionary what offenses can be added and what you can go after people with. Uh, be a fundamental, I, I guess, the tension is a neutral way of putting, putting the point. Yeah, I mean, entirely. Sorry, your voice got cut a little bit in the middle. So I wasn't able to hear the conclusion of what you were saying. Yeah, I was saying this is a bit of a tension to put, to put it in a neutral, to use a neutral word, it's a tension in the judgment. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, you know, sorry to digress a little bit, but just to come back to, like, maybe help people remember what the schedule used to look like when the PMLA came to be. So if anyone would go and look at the PMLA as it existed in 2002-2005, there were two parts to the schedule, and the definition of a scheduled offense actually said that offenses under Part B were only scheduled offenses if the total value involved was 30 lakh or more. So, you right. know, the point that we are making, and if you look at the schedule, then part A, which is without the monetary limit, only had waging war from the IPC, NDPS offenses, and that's it. So, right. this is again in 2002, so this is prior to the UAPA amendments. So, then obviously there were some insertions to the schedule for when the UAPA came into being. And then what really changes things is when you come to 2012 and that's when the entire schedule is overhauled. So you had, again, as a result of the FATF report, you had an entirely new part A, which totally took away the monetary limit. And I think the removal of the monetary limit from part B was even later, which maybe, you know, if anyone's interested, I can... You can link it to the show notes or something. We can pull it out for that sure. later. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, so I think that we now come to the next substantive bit, right? Which is retrospectivity. Uh, so now here, what the court holds is that even though the scheduled offense or you know the the, the predicate offense, uh, the offense on the basis of which you are being prosecuted for those proceeds of crime. That offense might have been committed before the PMLA came into existence, but what you're getting from that, which is your proceeds of crime, the benefit you're getting from that, that's a kind of continuing thing. And this is also what the Delhi High Court recently held, and you've discussed that in your blog as well. Um, and because that's a continuing benefit that you are getting, in effect, you are committing that independent offense basically like every day, right? Um, and so even though the uh, the basic offense was committed before the PMLA came into being, you can still uh, be uh, proceeded against under the PMLA 
because you are still committing an offense by you know being in possession of or, or using that property or the proceeds of crime i think that's the basis on which i think both satyendra jain and nawab malik are presently in jail if i, if I understand correctly both in both cases the the uh, the offense they accused of was committed before the pmla uh, right um, so this effectively means that the pmla reaches back in time basically you know Uh, so exactly it doesn't matter when it reaches back in time yeah. till till frankly till kingdom come and and i think we've written enough about how that argument is a bit of a problem i mean it is more than a bit of a problem because on the one hand the courts insist that the underlying offense and the money laundering offense are intrinsically linked because it is because of the underlying offense that we have anything like proceeds of crime but when you turn the clock yeah. back prior to 2005 that under this, this entire structure of an underlying offense creating property that is called proceeds of crime did not exist so when i derived that, that property when i derived it it was never imagined to be proceeds of crime so yeah. today and this is this is exactly what the prohibition against retrospectivity is all about it is not allowing the government to go back in the past and open or change closed events it is so mm. so this is that entire line in law that you know people who are not so familiar with it would still appreciate intuitively if a law was to change uh, today and say that you know people who are above the age of 17 can vote so it is requiring certain things that have already happened like people have turned 17 so it's not it's not mm. really going into the past and changing things as they were back then but if a law comes today and says that oh whoever was let's say driving without wearing a yellow tie is going to be subjected to an offense and defines it by saying whoever was driving without a yellow tie over the last 5 years you are going back in time and making mm-hmm. driving without a yellow tie an offense so here as well what again and this is the link between you know retrospectivity and the pmla is that the pmla's definition of proceeds of crime is still about deriving or obtaining property right so yeah. that is still the you know, the rubicon as such like you the, the moment you derive or obtain the property is when it became proceeds of crime you then do something with it that means you are engaging in money laundering sure so you can you may not simply just obtain it money laundering's definition expands it to beyond obtaining it but nevertheless it will always come back to having derived or obtained it and since you can't do that by going back in time prior to 2005 and then redefining what my obtaining of that property meant you are offending you know the guarantee against retrospectivity i don't see how both courts have done this by you know just stressing on the fact that oh yes the fact that you used the property or you were in possession of it later means that it's good enough it's it's not because no matter which way you look at it you will always end up having to go back in time to change the you know the original moment of acquiring that property and if you're having to do that then you are offending the guarantee against retrospectivity and this is only the first limb right so the guarantee against retrospectivity in criminal law consists of two limbs 
so this is one of them that you can't go back into the past and make a crime which was not the second is that you cannot enhance punishment for what was a crime so i would actually argue that money laundering given the way it's structured is actually doing both things and the second one is a more let's say radical argument made by several people but still considered radical because this is not saying that okay i will amend the indian penal code to add you know extra years wherever in committing any of these offenses you acquired some property the government what it does is it creates an entirely new law but in effect does the same yeah. thing so if you were to cut across you know the sheen of oh wow there is this separate statute that is doing this and you come to the heart of the matter especially for you know white collar offenses like the offense of cheating is i cheat gautam to get his laptop hmm. proceeds of crime in this would be the laptop so by adding a new law that punishes my proceeds of crime effectively is doing nothing else but punishing the cheating twice it is looking at the transaction slightly differently right so it is criminalizing the fact that i have gained something but if you look at cheating's definition cheating is also entirely about wrongful gain so you like you will end up getting stuck even on the second limb not in all offenses but in a lot of them especially when you are on you know these uh, financial frauds because wherever you have a law that talks about dishonesty in indian criminal law the definition of dishonesty is entirely about wrongful gain and wrongful loss and that is what money laundering is covering for you the fact that you wrongfully gained yeah i mean so as it just to read out article 20 clause 1 you know properly no of the constitution that is uh, no person shall be convicted of any offense except for violation of the law in force at the time of the commission of the act charged as an offense nor be subjected to a penalty greater than that which might have been inflicted under the law in force at the time of the commission of the offense and i think this is what it comes down to right like i think as you said it seems to me that intuitively even if you buy the argument that it's a new offense there is definitely an enhanced penalty um because earlier the the offense that is now a scheduled offense right the penalty for that would have been x and now it's x plus pml exactly so how, right. how how can it, it not be enhanced penalty like it it is i mean i it seems to me logic 101 you have to somehow ignore logic yeah, but, 101 but logic goes there. away on sophistry no because it is a yeah. different offense because what you are actually now criminalizing is not the fact of the scheduled offense but the fact that you generated some property by committing the scheduled offense so you are asked to just shut that part of your brain which will yeah. want to again link it to the to the to the fact of committing the offense but you're supposed to ignore it and only look at the property which i mean is a, is a way of doing it but again it's it's sophistry at its best according to me at least but uh, it's again I have to emphasize this this is not the first time that something like this has happened there are enough and more judgments of the supreme court that have you know uh, drawn back the reach of not article 20 sub clause 1 alone but 20 sub clause 2 in this regard by adopting a hyper technical approach in terms of how we should read these offenses and read the constitutional guarantees so again vijay madanlal choudhary being faithful to a long and proud tradition <laughs> in this regard you know speaking of sophistry i think that takes us to the um, to the last substantive uh, bit 
subject of, of discussion, which is, you know, I think one thing that's attracted a fair bit of attention, which is in section three, reading the um, and as an or, right? So earlier you had uh, this um, disjunct condition that it should be, that it should be uh, both, like you should be in, in possession or, or use of, of the property and also be projecting it as untainted, right? And now the court has said that actually that and means or. Um, and so I guess I mean my, my first question to you is just a basic noob kind of question. Does this make it a strict liability offense? Uh, you know, the whole NDBS line of offenses in that there's no requirement of intention now or mens rea. Like if you are if there is possession of tainted property, then that is enough. For no, so, or, or, okay. no, so in fact, it, this again requires a lot of reference to the FATF, uh, you know, history. And incidentally, this was a criticism, the and. Let, let's just go back to the definition, right? And let's, for people to better appreciate what the significance of this was. So the idea was that there are, section three identifies various processes of money laundering. So I'm just reading out the relevant part that basically if anyone who is found to do anything with proceeds of crime, including its concealment, possession, acquisition or use and projecting or claiming, right? So concealment, possession, acquisition or use as like one kind of thing and, and projecting or claiming the way that this allows itself to be read is that it's not good enough if you're merely possessing. You are also you are also projecting black as white, right? So you are laundering in that sense. You are giving that representation to the world that this is not, pardon my language, but this is not kaladhan. This is hmm. all white. This is all good. Now, what this and being read as all does is that it takes away this requirement of projection, right? Mm. So in effect, what it does is money laundering colloquially and you know intuitively was understood as this. The entire idea was projecting it by integrating it into the financial system. But mm. what it now is, it is entirely just dealing with proceeds of crime. That long and short of it is the offense now. So to answer your question about strict liability, I would disagree with you because the offense still requires you to knowingly deal with proceeds of crime. And since proceeds of crime are about, you know, committing a scheduled offense and there being a generation of proceeds of crime through that. So intention would come in through those processes and also the presence of knowingly here. But Sorry, but just to just to come back on that isn't section three doesn't section three have a multiple or like the or clause in the first bit so it's whoever directly or indirectly attempts to indulge or knowingly assists or knowingly is a part of or is actually involved in any process so right. like you could be involved in the process but not knowingly so right i mean you're you absolutely know, I can think right. of a situation where you, yeah. so i would still say that uh it, i mean the intention requirement is there because even if you were to then I, I take your point, but even if you then go back to the NDPS line of judgments, the idea of possession being conscious possession and you know what you're dealing with is enough to be read in. And even in terms of the application of the money laundering law so far, I, I haven't come across many instances of this being the case. But just to flag like these two FATF points here, the 2010 mutual evaluation report actually noted this issue. 
like it mm-hmm. noted that india indian law seemingly had lower threshold for men's wear requirements than those that were prescribed under the un convention against organized transaction transnational crime like the this is the right. palermo convention that is even referred to in the vijay manalal choudhary judgment and then right. again interestingly in the 2013 report the fatf was concerned about this and that we are all talking about right because it seemingly limited the scope of the offense but the government allayed these fears by telling the fatf team that this was actually not how existing judicial decisions even as old as 2013 were reading the offense and what as far as the and and the odd and thus is and this is not something that's come around in the judgment that well but there was actually a fairly long line of judgments even till 2013 and some are there even thereafter that were not reading that and as a they were actually treating it as an or so they were treating the projection requirement as a mandatory requirement to understand the offense of money laundering so what the supreme court has done effectively is that it has upheld that view as opposed to the plain language view as it would have been and what it has referred to is again what i was reading to you is this uh, fatf report where it seemed like the government stand always was that this and ought to be read as disjunctive and not as a bootstrapped requirement of sorts so yeah, but where, where does that leave the basic criminal law principle that given that criminal laws create offenses and you know imprison people all of that if there is one domain of law where the court has to read a law strictly if there is one domain of law where the court is not supposed to save uh, parliament from the consequences of its own incompetence it's criminal law right so where does that leave what we think of as a, as a basic criminal law and I, you're, you're going to say that in india it's never been the case which but no no i would say that, that even abroad so i would say that the death knell of this hallowed principle has been struck a long time ago even even abroad and if i'm not wrong there is a famous judgment of lord stains in the context of the house of lords where they have said in as many words that strict liability can go take a hike when it comes to these important so like you know social public interest type offenses so i mean unfortunately on that front the world really moved on a while ago sadly and not that i agree with that view but like right. you know people are like i think the idea comes from the fact that you can't trust the legislator to really be that precise in language it's sad but i'll give you an example i mean from the pmla's context so what really blew up the section 3 issue was the addition of an explanation in 2019 and what happened is by way of this explanation it was said that for the removal of doubts it is clarified that you will be guilty of money laundering and they repeated the entire definition and they then made all those processes that are identified above concealment possession acquisition and here they made it all disjunctive so it says a concealment b possession c acquisition d use or projecting as untainted property or claiming now i mean please explain to me what was so difficult about amending the section mm-hmm. rather than adding this you know ham fisted explanation that just repeats the section and then without amending the parent provision that still retains the and as it is today adds this like ridiculous explanation which you know 
is only confusing matters further where fine if since 2013 even right. before that you were always of the view that the and ought to be disjunctive then just amend the section like nobody stopping you you are the government but i mean yeah. it just does not make sense right and to do it by way of this odd explanation so what they did was they also then added continuity in terms of the definition so the process or activity connected with proceeds of crime is a continuing activity and continues till such time as a person is directly or indirectly enjoying the proceeds of crime by its concealment or possession or acquisition or use or projecting it as unclaimed property so this is that element of retrospectivity being done away with in, in the eyes of the government which you and i both agree is frankly not doing away with the retrospectivity argument at all when we think about mm. it but again there's it's just so odd as a legislative tactic i mean you can just be a lot more precise in even if you mm. want to try and achieve this but you would just do it also by the worst possible way i wonder you know which uh, who really goes ahead and helps to come around with these signs of suggestions no maybe maybe something tanks who knows anyway uh, we would we would go down that route uh, <laughs> but i think this is a good this is a good segue into into the procedural parts of of the um, of the of the judgment uh, because i think that a lot of this as as you said is also is also a case abroad um, when i asked for when i asked from twitter that two people have questions for you i think a number of people um, on twitter i have before me uttam sen gupta k venkat raman and a number of people basically um you know were asking about the fact that given there is an international consensus on stringent laws against money laundering and faatf uh, evaluation on these provisions inevitable right so yes and in as you as you said in, in substance uh, the substantive part of the of the law you know yeah that that could be a justification and of course the point then is that but are they accompanied then by adequate procedural safeguards which is where as you have said in your second blog post is the real bite of this judgment right so again there are the three things that we can we can look at uh, the one one of course is the initiation of the of the process you know what triggers search or an arrest the second is article 20 clause 3 the um, the uh, self incrimination clause and the third of course is is bail so so first on the searches and arrests right so as you have pointed out the uh, earlier before 2019 the procedure was that for a proceeding under the pmla courtesy of the ed to begin there has to be an investigation of the scheduled offense the logic being that the predicate offense has to exist uh, for the pmla to kick in it, given how long things take you may not want to have the requirement that there has to be a conviction on the predicate offense before the pmla proceeding start but also there has to be some connection between the two so investigation is the starting point um, now that is taken away by the amendment and that's what the court upholds and so the basic basically what the court is saying is that um, the the ed can be the initiator uh, the ed can take a call not only on initiating the pmla process but also on whether there has been the commission of a scheduled offense which is the whole justification for bringing the act in, in the first place uh, and that as you say is like the tail wagging the dog because now the ed can now send a letter to a police station um, saying that uh, you know uh, start start a criminal process right so so that's basically it right 
Yeah, so on section 17, I think what, what's happened is that the court has blessed a lo- the logic which, you know, is simply this, that wherever there is smoke, there must be fire. So because we think that this is proceeds of crime, we have already done something about it. As the enforcement directorate, it doesn't matter that there is no actual determination by the competent agency that this is a scheduled offence. That can get figured out later on in time. And there's so much problematic in this as a concept because no matter how, which way we look at the PMLA, till now at least, and maybe the law will get amended again the 20th time that it does, Today, it's not the ED that has any jurisdiction to determine whether or not a scheduled offence has been committed. That's not been done yet. So what Vijay Madanlal Chaudhary has done, and at best, if we look at the section, right, so what the court relies upon in this regard is Section uh, Section 66 of the Money Laundering Act. So it says that the director or any other authority specified by him may furnish or cause be furnished uh, any officer under any law regarding information uh, on the money laundering front, such officer, any information received by the director to the necessary for the purposes of this officer, right? So basically, if you mm. find any information in this limited context, right, under the NDPS Act, mm. so that that's it. So what the court has done is this limited provision which is not even extending to all kinds of offences. The court has used this as a logic and said that, oh, wherever the director under the Money Laundering Act thinks that there might be a scheduled offence, you can take action on the premise that there would be a scheduled offence, right? Because money laundering's definition requires at least someone who is competent to apply their minds to the issue and then decide that there was a scheduled offence. Here, that's not the case. I mean, till now, at least the enforcement director doesn't have that power. But by way of this interpretation to Section 17, they have been indirectly conferred that power because, I mean, and it's it's true, the court is right, that they are very senior officers who are invested with dealing with this power. But again, if we are thinking about it, how many you know junior station house officers will be willing to disagree with a prima facie view of a very senior officer of the central forces of the of the government machinery not that, many that kind of you know brings me to one thing that i wanted to you know flag here which is there is a federal issue here right because normally i mean law and order etc is, is normally a state subject um and in normal course of, of circumstances, the uh, it would be the, the state police that would be looking at those scheduled offenses as standalone offenses, right? Um, but what you are effectively doing, and this is like kind of a previous critique in different contexts about acts like the NIA and so on, right? Uh, yeah. You are effectively, uh, this is effectively undermining federalism in the sense that it is giving a set of officers who are not even nominally independent because they come directly under the control of of uh, central ministries uh, you are effectively giving them power over state police right i mean if effectively it may not be in Absolutely. formal terms yeah. but effectively you are giving and, and and this is the whole thing right i mean when we the whole reason why every indian now knows what the ed is 
is i mean and i you know again not to to put it bluntly it's because what you see happening for your eyes and this is the whole george orwell thing of you know the evidence of your eyes and ears what you see happening is that a particular state is ruled by an opposition party and the ed is very active in in, in that state uh, you know and uh, and and what this interpretation now does is that it turbocharges that federal issue where it makes it easier for central authority yet another central agency to have control over how state police will conduct its affairs and of course i mean in an ideal world will say that you know uh, either all politicians are equally corrupt and therefore this is fine or all politicians are fine and so this should not be an issue but ultimately it's about a power asymmetry like you you are arming you are arming the central government with a kind of power that is not there with the state government and that asymmetry then bleeds over into the political domain right yeah i i mean i totally agree with that argument and in terms of again the federal issue that this poses it's something that has been made in some quarters regarding uh, agencies like the enforcement directorate and the nia but again it's not an argument that is uh, very happily taken on and i think the issue is actually more serious when you look at the the enforcement directorate now because of uh, i think both ways so one could still argue that because the underlying investigation into the scheduled offense will still be done by another agency you can say that all the all that the central agency here is doing is playing a helping hand so that's playing devil's advocate whereas let's say you know in an nia kind of context everything happens by way of the central agency taking over which is let's say what used to happen with the cbi so again in terms of agencies at the central level doing investigative work i think and uh, that federal issue actually hasn't been taken on very well and there is a, there is a pending matter in the supreme court regarding the validity of the cbi that has been yeah, pending course, yeah. for guwahati high court 13 struck it down and last 9 years it's been pending of course it has been pending Correct. <laughs> yeah so it, it is yeah. still pending and one of the critical issues that was raised there was reading the fe- reading list one and figuring out how how do you place an agency like the cbi in the relevant entries of list 1 and till you decide that you basically those issues about how what is the validity of something like the nia or the ed see because if you think of customs and this is where and again we i think i'm uh, <laughs> giving a teaser to something else but if you look at other agencies like customs or foreign exchange these are issues that are still relevant to some entries in the union list which is why the customs mm. act exists but something like the ed which is dealing with proceeds of crime from any offense you are ultimately traveling back to list 2 yeah the state similarly list. for the nia you are traveling back to list 2 so to the state list given you're dealing with any offense right so it's again till you decide those federal issues you won't get an answer but the argument is definitely there to be made and hopefully in the in the challenge to some of the findings in vijay mandalal choudhary in a hypothetical world which will be dealt with a five judge bench <laughs> this, this will this will be there you know i unfortunately i i think that um, if it does come to a five judge bench and a federal issue is raised then state of west bengal will be a big impediment and uh, no, not not the present state of 
best to go with the judgment so yeah, yeah, the judge. gonna, yeah we'll we'll yeah. experiment and uh, you need to go to seven judge bench you know and and and, and so the game will continue um because <laughs> honestly i mean you know um honestly the supreme court's record on federalism does not inspire one with great confidence no no nor does it inspire confidence when it comes to uh, fundamental rights and white collar crime and uh, Yeah, and I would like to talk a little bit together. I, I'm almost, I'm almost afraid <laughs> of what, what will happen if a federal argument is made before the Supreme Court in social, social economic offence you know, challenge. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost, I almost don't want to know, you know. <laughs> Uh, but you know, yeah, point of course is the same that that there is that I think I, I, this is something that I, my my present research kind of focuses on, which is that um, you know the constitution is a terrain of contestation between different kinds of power, and one thing it has is this centralizing drift uh, that over the years everything has moved towards you know vesting power in the central executive, and you know this case is an example of that, and the federal issue is, I think is also an example. of of that as well um, but sticking with the constitution right uh, this the second issue that that comes up procedurally is um, the fact that the the court says that the uh, officials of the ed are not police officers and therefore statements made to them uh, are not in and the, and the person isn't an accused and therefore the statements made to them a are not hit by the bar against confession to police officers and b are not protected by the constitutional guarantee against self incrimination so a confessional those statement those are distinctive points by the way so those are distinctive yeah yeah, yeah no so yeah, yeah. two separate yeah. points but kind of yeah um and so effectively a confessional statement or a self incriminatory statement uh, made to an ed officer are both admissible in evidence where they normally are not if the crpc was to apply as it usually does and the constitution was to apply as it usually does um in your blog you you make the point that there is a very long history um to to this particular issue which is that from almost immediately after independence the supreme court has consistently whittled down the scope of the constitutional guarantee against self incrimination by holding that if you aren't really arrested uh, you know doesn't apply if the person who is who has you in their custody and is interrogating you isn't formally police doesn't apply and so on um, so i guess like two two questions one is that given that long history is there anything different that this judgment does or does it does it just stick to that line of cases see uh, let's break up the police officer issue and the uh, article 20 sub clause 3 issue and i think the easier answer is on the police officer issue where i had actually i'm there's a there's a piece that i'd written way back in 2014 that considers this fairly comprehensively this entire issue of who is a police officer because it always fascinated me that you know okay fine this this section 25 of the indian evidence act does say police officer but surely it can't be literally an officer who is in khaki and no one else but surprisingly frankly the the, the interpretation over over the years by the supreme court and no smaller court has been this and the and the way in which the supreme court has actually done it is is shocking because what the supreme court's broad line of reasoning has been is so hyper technical 
So what happens is that a police officer when investigating a case would register an FIR and then file what is usually in common parlance called a charge sheet or a chalan. When the central agencies do their investigations, they usually don't register something like an FIR and they definitely don't file a charge sheet. What they file is called a complaint. The Supreme Court in a series of judgments, three actually, in, 90, in the 1960s, mid-1960s, effectively endorsed a test that said that a police officer is a person who is going to file a charge sheet. Nothing more and nothing less. Seriously, believe you me. So if you cull that test down to its essence, it is this. If you are an officer who can file a charge sheet, you are a police officer. Which is odd because obviously, you know, there are all these other agencies that have coercive powers. They can detain you. They can arrest you. They can question you on oath. But because of them not having the power to file a charge sheet, the Supreme Court says that these are not police officers. Now, what happened earlier, like, you know, a couple of years ago is that the Supreme Court decided a reference in a limited context where this issue had been arising in the NDPS Act. It's Tofan Singh. Correct. So Tofan Singh, Tofan Singh's judgment, where three judges bench, dealt with this issue in the NDPS context and said that for the NDPS context, these other officers will be police officers. Now, Tufan Singh was an important judgment, but a very, very limited judgment in its scope because what it had before itself, the court, had the NDPS Act. It did not have the broader issue. And the NDPS Act is so different from any other statute when it comes to the investigation framework because, you know, unlike, let's say, the, the Money Laundering Act or the Customs Act, the NDPS Act confers powers on both police officers and other persons. Mm. So there was such an obvious classification issue there where, you know, you would have the option where if your case was investigated by a police officer, that guarantee would apply. But if it was not investigated by a police officer, possibly that guarantee would not apply, which is like smack arbitrary on the face of it. So one of the major reasons for the court to say that, you know, all police officers, all officers under the NDPS Act should be treated as police officers is this, that otherwise there was no rational way in which to administer the investigative machinery of that act. But at the same time, the court, in my view, had an opportunity which it seized with one hand, which is that it had an opportunity to do, you know, take some steps back from that hyper-technical, can you file a charge sheet test? And it took it with one hand because it did endorse, you know, a test that turned to understanding what is the act all about, right? So understanding if the powers are conferred under an act which broadly has a penal sort of uh, object to meet. So which is where it turned to earlier judgments. It looked at this kind of reasoning there in the earlier Supreme Court judgments as well and said that, you know, this is actually the determinative test that... Yes, it is also, it couldn't really deal with the other issue because it was by a five judges bench. But it nevertheless endorsed this line of logic that took you have to look at what are these powers being conferred for. If they are being conferred to officers, you know, whose overall objective is, let's say, to avoid tax evasion and deal with penalties, but they've also been granted arrest powers, then no, it's fine, we won't treat them as police officers. 
I mean, I am not agreeing with that logic for one second, but I am just hmm. stating it for what it is. But if the overall purpose of this enactment is, you know, to enforce penal law and to secure compliance and to punish offences, then these officers ought to be treated as police officers. What is odd in Vijay Majinlal Chaudhary is that the court, surprisingly, does not stick to the easy way out and just says that, you know, these guys are not filing charge sheets and those are not police officers. It refers to all of those judgments, but still decides to engage with this issue of penal act or non-penal act when it comes to the PMLA. And it uses its favorite phrase, which is that the PMLA is a sui generis statute sui generis, that, is, yeah. that is multifaceted, like, you know, a fly's eye, like, you know, many facets, a fly's eye. So this is this is like that. And so ultimately, this is not really a penal statute in its import, but it has other various objectives and it also has civil consequences that can ensue for people. Uh, but tell me something. I mean, see, you, you made this. You made this point in your blog, and 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 this, you know, this whole thing of it as being a sui generis statute really informs a lot of the court's conclusions, upholding many of the provisions. But I, yeah. so I, again, this could be a noob kind of question. But how can it not be a penal statute when you can put people in arresting them and put them in jail uh, so, and apply so, for bail, right? Like how? So that's I mean, a first level issue. I am saying, yeah. Gautam, that's a first level issue, right? Any statute that allows this to happen can be a penal statute. But I'm saying, let's take that argument for what it's worth. And this right. is there in earlier judgments where they say that, look, you know, overall, if the entire idea of the law is to secure compliance and to punish offenses and detect commission of offenses, etc., as opposed to this being an ancid, like ancillary or incidental part of the law. Hmm. I mean, somehow, you know, you have to trust the judges to be able to do this. I don't know how you do it, but supposedly you're supposed to trust the judges to be able to, you know, find that kernel of legislative intent behind a statute. Mm. I'm saying that in the ED, it's, it's, I'm gobsmacked, you know, to think that that is how it can be because whichever way you run down, right? So imagine that this is a, a maze of sorts or like, you know, one of those, uh, labyrinths that you one one way will somehow lead you to that conclusion that this is sui generis and not penal mm. but it's it's just not because whichever way you turn the conclusion that always comes is that if if the criminal action under the money laundering act did not exist nothing can exist on the civil the, the scheduled offense the scheduled offense the scheduled offense no, of- i'm not saying the scheduled offense I, that actually is a level before i'm mm. saying so so therefore that is one Right. Suppose that you are ignoring that. Suppose you are ignoring that level of argument that, okay, look, the genesis of money laundering is crime. Mm -hmm. So therefore, it is a penal act. I'm saying ignore that. Mm -hmm. I'm saying within the money laundering act, without a prosecution for the offense of money laundering, nothing in that act in terms of an enforcement action survives. All right. So basically all the attachment of property depends on the criminal action. It, it hinges on the fact that there is a prosecution. Yeah. So so at best, what you get is one year's worth of provisional attachment if you do not launch a prosecution. The only event in which a confiscation of property can happen if is if you secure a conviction in the money laundering offense. The only way in which an attachment subsists if is if there is a prosecution. The 
the entire idea of money laundering is defined in the offense clause right so section 3 is what explains to us what money laundering is and that is the definition of the offense hmm. so if everything turns back to the crime then how can you say that this is not a penal act simply because it has a machinery to set up a tribunal that that, that means it's not a penal act or simply yeah, and, and this is kind of like this, this whole thing of it not being a penal statute is ironically what the court uses to justify upholding all these very draconian procedural requirements right so all of this and it's it's again was, it's received wisdom applied wrong right so this is again what the court has shiftily done in the past so which is what we were discussing right this idea that oh it's not a penal act so this is how they upheld powers under let's say the customs act so again the idea is oh the customs act allows for a civil penalty independent of the criminal action so if you are let's say caught with a customs act violation the customs officer has the ability to file a complaint only for the penalty right they can do that without necessarily having to also prosecute you they have the choice they have a legitimate choice between not launching a prosecution same goes for what used to be the old fera law the foreign exchange regulation act where an action may not end in a prosecution today that is just not possible under money laundering and which is why it's that that equivalence between let's say money laundering and customs and money laundering in fera so on and so forth is a false equivalence because money laundering at its heart however many times you look at it will always lead you back to the offense yeah 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 so i mean so that i think that's clear and then to come back to this whole thing therefore of of them not being police officers if the whole argument of it not being a you know civil statute but being a penal statute falls then at least as far as this case's logic goes that argument also falls because like you said they don't go down the other route of the charge sheet you're not a police officer if you don't file a charge sheet but they go down this route of it oh it's not really a criminal exactly statute. right yeah. yeah yeah so so given that that is the case it becomes a little more difficult for the court to have justified this conclusion yeah and i mean but it has done it somehow so which brings us to that second issue regarding article 20 sub clause 3 yeah and no person actually, shall be uh, compelled to be a witness against himself that's for the if only, if only gotham gotham if only it said no person and that oh, sorry 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 people said you the sorry this i think last time also last time also I, when we discussed this I, i somehow forgot that that no no person accused of any offense shall be compelled to be a witness against correct. himself correct yeah and that is where the rubber hits the road <laughs> because precisely this issue of when you are accused of an offense is what the court uses to and actually pre- previous courts have also done this when it comes to these kinds of socio economic offenses where you don't have an fir to start with and the and the prosecution starts with a complaint so the courts say that that filing of the complaint after the investigation is when you are an accused and therefore till that stage your right against self compelled self incrimination will not get attracted in vijay madanlal choudhary to its credit the court has actually explicitly noted that look that ought not to be the case when you're dealing with someone who's been arrested there the guarantee may apply and believe you me that's not something that's been clearly laid down in the past imagine mm. so at least now within the context of the pmla you have the possibility to explore this argument that look okay once i am arrested so at least that that fact of my arrest 
ought to treat me as an accused person across the board so even when let's say we go back to the customs act in the future or other acts you have to then allow me this guarantee post arrest and so therefore statements that are taken from me under section 50 under pain of perjury after arrest ought to be covered by self incrimination because interestingly even the prior judgments on this they never engaged with the idea of whether or not the questioning in itself is mm-hmm. compulsion and that's it's it's a it's a fault in you know the existing line of cases on this because that technical argument was available that since you are not an accused we don't need to consider it judgments in the past just never considered that issue of you know if i am in custody and i am being asked questions is that compelled self incrimination or not hmm and the only answer on this is again a really bad answer which is there in the judgment in kathikalu ogard's case which i i think i'd rather not spend time on because if that started then this conversation can go on for at least an hour more sure sure so, yeah 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 you know i think i guess i guess the point that i want to make is that as in the case of police officers where the court is taking this hyper technical approach to what or who is a police officer as in the case of self incrimination where the court is taking a hyper technical approach to what it means to be accused of an offense what the court is missing here is basically what you say if it walks like a duck quacks like a duck it is a duck right? so basically like the, the the reason why the crbc or the sorry the evidence act you know makes inadmissible confessions to police officers is because a police officer is an agent of the state in a certain position of power over the person whom he or she has in custody similarly the reason why the constitution prohibits self compel self incrimination is because it understands that the context in which you are compelled to incriminate yourself is a context of a difference of power between the state and you as the individual and and therefore the real analysis that the court should be doing is that when the all these agencies who proliferate across the board their officers have you in their power is that something that is similar to the kind of power a police officer exercises or the kind of power that is there when you are ex- been formally accused and under interrogation the court doesn't do that and instead starts from a reverse kind of position where it's like what might the definition of accused be what might the definition of police officer be we will use that instead of asking okay why this definition in the first place right yeah and two, two things on that one again at pains of repeating myself again and again the court has been very faithful to its past in doing so and this is the approach that the court adopted from way back when late 1950s in respect of how to under, understand article 20 sub clause 3 and in respect of the police officer issue it adopted this kind of a hyper technical technical approach in the mid 60s but again just to for me at least on my position on the judgment i think your apps that 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 summarizes precisely how the court has looked at the police officer issue in respect of the article 20 sub clause 3 issue i think what the court has said is look anyone who gets a summons is definite because this is what the constitutional text says it is not no person it is no person accused of an offense so to some extent i i do agree with the court that look if you if you are receiving a summons under section 50 Oh, not okay. every 
exactly of the pmla to give information on oath then not every person under the sun is going to be an accused so the problem is again it's about how you pitch the argument so it's not bad on its own terms for every person under the sun which is where you then have to understand who might be an accused right so for purposes yeah. of let's say if you were to consider how will how will it apply here what the court has given us is at least one answer which is that if you are arrested under the pmla then well you know it hasn't said it in black or white but it has at least said it in a decently dark enough shade of gray that <laughs> you know it it should be considered whereas i would actually say and this is what at least some people were arguing and i was there in court when this had happened i i think it was mr abad ponda who was making these submissions but i think people can see the judgment and confirm is that if you are let's say a person who who is the person who was accused of the scheduled offense right yeah. so if, if if you are that person and you are the person who has let's say already received a notice that your property is being attached i know i am going to be the accused in the money laundering case right there is no doubt so why should i have to stand why should the law stand on ceremony for me to be arrested for me to you know go ahead and then claim my rights right and and that the court doesn't engage with so there are actually judgments to that effect and i think they had cited this judgment to the supreme court in ramanlal bhogilal's case in 1973 i think where again this is the idea right so if if you if you know i mean there is really no doubt in anyone's mind that you will or you stand in that position how the earlier judgments on customs used to squirrel their way out of this is that the court used to turn around and say that oh look no but this customs officer can you know not file a prosecution yeah so yeah that can still happen but in the pmla you don't have that option right so in the pmla you are at a worse position than what you were in the customs act from the departmental perspective and if the i mean i would then make the argument that that equivalence could, could not be made but the court doesn't really grapple with that issue at all and what it does at least tell us thankfully is that if you are arrested then 20 plus 3 probably you know you know really i think arrest yeah we can't really not pull that trigger for accused in in arrest kind of cases so right that yeah that, that's like one of the slivers of <laughs> i don't know what that have that has come favors of hope uh, or maybe like you know one of those um, little hooks that you can you can pull on to make the whole thing unravel and of course being very optimistic yeah. here um but yeah but the, the third thing and the third thing and i forgot to mention this when i was when i was sum, summing up the issues here but of course then is that and even when you are being um, being uh, called or say summoned or when you are being questioned uh, or even when when then after that um, the uh, the the ed you know then say you know files what's what what is called the, the ecir right like that's so that, that's that's the that's the technical term uh, sorry what about the ecir yeah so that that's what that's what the equivalent of the fir is so there's a little bit more to that right so if if you see an ecir it's it's not really here or there so what the departmental position on this is and this is what they stated on affidavit in a lot of matters is that and this is what the court also accepted in vijay madanlal choudhury is that the ecir is an internal administrative document that basically is like we have opened this file essentially nothing more nothing less 
it records the fact that oh a scheduled offense was committed it involved the fact of proceeds of crime okay these are the details it's not uh, anything more than that essentially is the point so i'm saying e- even if i was to agree with the view of the court that the ecir is an internal document and look when you are persons who are getting arrested or are being asked to come for questioning you ought to be given something to to know what the case is against you if you are occupying that position as a suspect or as someone of interest the court you know says that and doesn't say it so the court says that look in when you are arrested you have this statutory provision that says you should get the grounds of arrest now that's fine but how detailed should those grounds be what all should be there is it good enough for the police or the enforcement director to simply say oh grounds of arrest are you committed an offense nothing more nothing less uh, you know that happens by the way so if you look at the forms that have ha- that come about as a result of the arnesh kumar judgment where slight digression but basically arnesh kumar said that you should have forms disclosing oh, what were the reasons for arrest mm. often the reasons for arrest simply say commission of offense under section 420 i mean yeah. <laughs> you are none the wiser <laughs> by knowing that <laughs> fact are you So it's a bit like know. it's a bit like how in constitutional law many of those free speech restricting laws just reproduce Article 19 clause two. You know, Correct. Uh, yeah, yeah. You just yeah. you just cite yeah like 69 ages will repeat all of any order that is banning any content online will just recite all of Article 19 and you know go figure. Yeah. So uh, similarly, if the court is telling us okay fine you are supplied with the grounds of arrest, so you know tell us what is good enough. because what the ecir at least did if it, even if it was a bureaucratic instrument whatever internal document it at least had the details of an allegation and if the court is telling us indirectly that the grounds of arrest have to convey to you the allegations and not just the crux in terms of what offense is triggered then in the long run you can still be you know not as worse off as you would have been uh, let's say in a in a non fir world but the problem is on on the ground that is not exactly what happens where well, actually... my, my question my question to you is that again going by the walks like a duck quacks like a duck logic for police officers and for self incrimination isn't the ecir in this context doing what the fir does otherwise like isn't isn't it functionally doing what that does i mean for for a moment forget like the formal difference but just like what does an fir do no so that's what that's what's interesting right and i actually want to question this received wisdom on this tell me what is an fir like what does an fir do but i mean the first information report and the police kind of set out on so and so date you or so and so person did x y z sets out allegations yeah, yeah it is just yeah. a record of allegations technically yeah. what it does yeah. is two things right so it is it is believed that the fir is what allows the police to start an investigation i think wrongly and i don't think that's the correct answer but what it definitely does is it is an official document that sets out the allegations requiring the state machinery to be started yes i am saying that fine don't give don't call the ecir an internal document create a new document that requires that to be shared with me because right. if you see the ecir often actually it doesn't have that much detail so i'm telling right. you so this, the, 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 the larger point larger point is that an individual should be put on notice get made yeah. exactly so i agree with you the larger point stand but i'm saying that by making it about the ecir and not about the larger point something was lost 
because if you focus too much on the form right if you also end up focusing on the form it becomes easier for the other side to just make it about the form and get away with it but right. if but you without, without going into what should be in the form or the content of the form correct so if you actually see ecirs often sometimes they don't have that much detail so they will simply say oh so and so agency has registered so and so offense this is the amount of proceeds of crime alleged and these are the these are the names of people who are principally involved it will be half a page long nothing more in some cases i'm saying right so right. rather right. than make it about the the foundational point which is the fact that an accused ought to be at notice which to whatever little credit the court gets in its discussion on art section 19 which is the arrest provision it does say that the 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 clause says and the constitution says that a person has to be informed of the grounds of his or her arrest hmm. now the the problem there is that grounds is a very you know wishy washy term unless you clothe it with some meaning and now we will again fall to the high courts to really engage in that exercise of clothing this idea with meaning where the high courts are the ones which had actually done this in the past as well so it's i mean it's you know back to square one in a sense because we landed up in the supreme court because a lot of high courts had actually gone ahead and closed the ed pmla process with the crpc guarantees so in right. one one way to look at vijay madanlal choudhary it is that it has now you know defined some of the hazy contours but on many others it has just sent the uh, the clock back and given all the accused persons again their rights before the respective high courts to now ask the courts to give the interpretation that hopefully will be more rights affirming than what the department would want correct so i said so you're saying that the argument for the high court high courts now has to be the next battle has to be that yeah that even if you don't want to give us the ecir you still yeah. have to give us like the grounds in enough detail to put us on notice that look what exactly. are we being what are we being called here for exactly right so that's one kind of argument that is bound to be made and there will be others as well on like and i, I don't think we need to belabor that point because that's sure. a separate issue altogether of strategy etc but there will be a lot of these challenges that you will see over the next one year six months to one year about various aspects where you know in let's say a backhanded way vijay madanlal choudhary now suggests what are the possible avenues or safeguards for accused persons and you right. will see people strategically exploring those because whatever little cracks are there your the job of the lawyer is to try and widen them and you will see those kinds of challenges come up yeah, so basically you're saying you and your colleagues are lenard core <laughs> like you are the other people who bring the light in from the crack and that's why you need the crack so it's a, it's a nice way of, of looking at the at the criminal trial lawyer's job i, I like it um <laughs> the the last uh, okay, the last bit you know of, of this um, of this case is you haven't bail. touched bail yet yeah so la- last bit is now bail right? <laughs> <laughs> so this is <laughs> we, we now we now come to bail um bail so you know pmla has this twin test that uh, before you grant bail prosecutor has to be heard and um and that of course the, the real kicker is that the, the court should be uh, you know should be reasonably convinced that the uh, the accused did not uh, is not guilty um and uh, in nikesh tarachan shah's case another justice nariman judgment they had struck down this provision on the basis that there was an irrational classification uh, in uh, in which cases would attract the twin test and which wouldn't which would be offenses 
then the legislature responded uh, by basically saying that all scheduled offenses are now subject to the twin test which the supreme court has now upheld in uh, in its judgment here uh, i'm just giving a very schematic kind of of, of yeah yeah absolutely yeah um now of course one thing is the is a running theme that we have discussed throughout uh, throughout this conversation which is that on the one hand you are saying oh money laundering is a crime against the economic fabric of the nation it's this really grave offense and on the other hand you're saying oh but okay if you really want to in- impose restrictive procedural safeguards such as the twin test for bail and all of that it's fine you can bring any offense into its ambit so this is the whole tension right on the one hand you're like the reason why you need the pmla is because it's so serious at the same time it doesn't matter what you use the pmla for it could be totally non serious so to say uh, so that's one issue what are the other i guess issues in this bail finding no so and i think the the first is a really big issue right because in a sense the petitioners were taking the court on its own argument because it's the court and the department which makes the argument of how serious the pmla as an offense like uh, money laundering as an offense is and then to sort of you know cast that aside when it's convenient is all the more there, like remarkable then so just wanted to flag that in terms of other issues i think there are two right so one is i think there's been a lot of controversy regarding you know how could nikesh tarachand shabi you know thrown away to in the rubbish bin like this that's one one angle of controversy and the second is obviously what happens with the twin test what does it do what will happen in the future etc so on nikesh tarachansha again it it was a judgment that considered the twin test when it came to the pmla and this is something that had when the judgment had come i distinctly remember you know that that buzz and i, mm-hmm. I really I, i remember it so much so that like you know it's, it's even there on the blog where the, when the when the judgment came i was compelled to even just you know write like a small one para thing that you know it's seminal they they struck it down they struck it down they struck twin conditions down but let's read the judgment to find out exactly how they done it and mm-hmm. lo and behold they mm-hmm. hadn't really struck the idea of twin conditions down which they couldn't have done but what they did was basically take it on its own terms in so far as section 45 is concerned to say that look we agree that twin conditions are required we agree that it's required where there are like you know significant state interests at play but not every offense of money laundering seems to satisfy that threshold so there is some level of manifest arbitrariness within the statute and they didn't really so they dealt with the article 14 argument extensively on article 21 they didn't really deal with the argument and so has could the legislature have done away with the classification altogether in my view no and so this is the difference between you know fixing or or remedying a defect as the court believes the amendment has done mm-hmm. whereas undermining the foundations of the judgment in nikesh tarachand shah which is what a lot of the petitioners had argued has happened by way of the 2018 amendment whereby the legislature has said screw this idea of you know only serious cases requiring the restrictive bail conditions all cases are serious ergo every case should have the restrictive bail conditions this offends the logic of nikesh tarachand shah front and center which somehow you know the court didn't really appreciate the argument it seems and the reason for this is that nikesh tarachand shah's logic is that 
the twin test can be used for certain serious offenses because exactly. it's like a more restrictive bail condition exactly but right? there has to so be a logic to your deciding which precisely. of those are serious yeah so earlier if you turn back basically if you go to the start of our conversation today where we were talking about the schedule there used to be that logic right so there used to be only very serious kinds of scheduled offenses were there in part a which did not have a monetary threshold and then let's say the so called lesser offenses of gravity were there in part b but there was a monetary threshold in terms of the kinds of proceeds of crime that are involved hmm. what happened post the 2012 amendments to the pmla is that they took out almost everything from part b which had the monetary threshold and lumped it into part a right. so what that means then is that everything is there in part a which doesn't have the monetary threshold and anyway, everything is serious so which is what like at some level the court had a problem with in uh, nikesh tarajan shah that boss this doesn't make sense anymore because you haven't your section still refers to part a part b before 2018 and if you look at part a part b today they don't make any sense so rather than retain that classification fix part a part b and do something about it the court decided to abandon this classification idea from the bail clause altogether which according to me at least was i mean taking a an axe and totally doing away with everything that nikesh tarajan shahid held nevertheless vijay madanlal choudhary has upheld that uh, you know sledgehammer type mm. exercise access led hammers i think this becoming a little too violent so I'll, i'll 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 take it back so the the court has upheld that exercise but what it then does is it explains to us that look these conditions will apply everywhere in so far as basically there was a doubt that was there from nikesh tarajan shah as to whether it applied to anticipatory bail or not that that the court has clarified saying that it applies to anticipatory bail as well and the only sort of considerations or scenarios in which these these conditions will not uh, apply is if you're getting default bail on grounds of delay so either yeah. investigative delay under section 167 or prosecution delays under section 436a what the court interestingly doesn't deal with is a scenario where suppose i am not arrested during an investigation so then what happens so then how even if let's say suppose the rigors of section 45 would be there would they be mollified on the lines of you know ordinary bail tests where if my conduct during an investigation was such and this is the, and this gotham is actually the the odd part of this entire scheme of arrest and bail in all of these acts so this if you if you go back to the arresting clause actually to un- so we need to do that to fully appreciate the problem with the section 45 the arresting clause under the pmla is not like the crtc the pmla clause is a lot like the customs act for that matter where it says it doesn't say that you have reasonable grounds to arrest it says that you will arrest where you have reason to believe that a person has been guilty of an offence punishable under the act hmm it's a very high threshold Right. right so and think about it it actually sends so many signals suppose you don't arrest me during an investigation can you send me to uh, can you send me to trial if you didn't think that i was guilty of an offense doesn't that incentivize arrest though doesn't doesn't really incentivize arrests because that's what know. right exactly so it's such an odd provision 
I mean, it's not thankfully applied this way in practice, right? So it has been there for a very long time. Surprisingly, not really challenged vociferously across any of the statutes. Hmm. And there are a couple of judgments in the context of the Customs Act where the court has said eh, it, it means whatever it means. Like they haven't really <laughs> gone into the depth of it. But if you if you look at it, one way to read it is that it incentivizes arrest. Because if you don't get arrest me and if you send me to trial, I will turn around and say that, oh, you never thought I was guilty. So how can you send me to trial? Similarly, if you then if you then turn to 45, 45 asks the court to come to a determination that I am not guilty. Mm. If the agency thought that I am not guilty because it didn't arrest me, so then shouldn't my non-arrest already serve like you know satisfy the condition of section 45? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So it's a bit like I mean, it's, it's it's in certain sense it's a bit like this whole bail thing, right? I mean, if if the bail requirement if, if a judge under this twin test, which is there in different formats in NDPA, CBPA, PMLA, and so on, yeah. if the judge is satisfied that that you know that the uh, that there is no reasonable grounds to believe prima facie that the person is is not guilty, and gives bail, I mean then it's effectively declaration of innocence, right? I mean Correct. after that, uh, so it's the same thing but working in kind of reverse. So, and what's interesting in the PMLA, and I don't have the facts to back this, so some in, people who are interested may want to check this out. I don't know how many acts have that kind of an arrest clause and the twin conditions. So right. I think the only other one that has this is actually today the Companies Act, where right. if I remember right, the new Companies Act section 212 again says that you will arrest if you have reason to believe that I'm guilty. And then it also retains this twin conditions logic. Hmm. Hmm. So, right. so again, so there are not that many which do this, but this, and if you look at, let's say the Customs Act, which un- allows for arrest, but it doesn't ca- carry the twin conditions with it. So where you can say that, you know, in those cases, if a police officer arrested me on the, pre- on the premise that it, they believe that I am guilty, if a court comes to an opposite conclusion, then actually that's an even worse situation, right? Yeah. Because I mean, I am disagreeing with your finding without having to require in law that, actually, no, let's take that back. You can actually do that in the Customs Act without affecting the prosecution case that much. Because if I'm not required to come to a finding of, you know, whether or not you're guilty, I will apply the regular, regular rules of bail and I'll grant you bail. So yeah. your findings as an agency are intact. Here, because there is that test of arrest on the agency that boss is that person guilty is what you have to satisfy and have reasons to believe for and the court has the test of not guilty you are pitting these two agencies against each other in you know is really odd sort of combination yeah i mean i think I mean, isn't this whole problem something you have pointed out quite a few times the whole problem is when you bring in considerations of guilt and innocence into bail, that is that is the root of the problem. Because ideally, it should be: can you tamper with the evidence? Can you browbeat witnesses? Are you a flight risk? Oh, absolutely. You know, if, if and if you're not, then I mean, set the guy free while the investigation is going on. The moment you bring in considerations of of guilt and innocence into bail, you have all kinds of absurd consequences. UAPA being one, and as you're saying, this thing where, on the one hand, the ED has made a determination of likely guilt because without that they can't arrest, 
and on the other hand now the court will be at loggerheads with with them if it, the court wants to give bail right and and of course how that plays out in practice then is largely a question of various pushes and pulls right yeah so i mean that that issue of incorporating innocence or guilt into bail is a is a big one right and like an, i don't think that is going to get resolved unless there is a proper legislative discussion into that and i think the answer is that even when there is that legislative discussion it's never going to go away because we are so wedded to this idea that it make it works yeah. because that if you look at the discussion vijay madanlal choudhury as well the fact the you know the manner in which the court upholds the twin conditions the underlying assumption there is it works it's mm-hmm. a good thing it mm-hmm. ought to be there right mm-hmm. even though it's not said in as many words it's it's very apparent you know that you know reading between the lines that is the overall judicial feeling around these clauses is mm-hmm. that they're, they're they're overall good things they're mm-hmm. good things in small measures but nikesh tarachan shah even for that matter mm-hmm. and that's what i you know that's why i was like this judgment has not gone as far as what we had imagined because mm-hmm. it still stuck to that logic that these are good things Mm-hmm. and ultimately that is the overarching belief especially when it comes to you know something like white collar crime that bail shouldn't be there for the asking because these are horrible people right and yeah, yeah you know that that's quintessentially the argument that you know ho smuggler ho smuggler so right. send them to jail but yeah and of course I mean, the, the deeper point is i mean the problem is that uh, that i mean uh, the, uh, the reason why all this is justified is that our justice system works so slowly that this becomes like the this becomes the righteous punishment right you denying the court denying bail is the court making up for how slow convictions like um, are, are in india so that is where like the court is getting its moral i think strength from that look we know that our system is broken we know it will take like 20 years to convict and they may be unjustified acquittals because witnesses will turn hostile and so on so we will now make up for that by denying bail and by bringing in all these you know quintess and all that is good thing so to say yeah so on that i mean you know the a different bench of the supreme court just this past month actually took judicial notice of that and and said in as many words that 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 happens and that ought not to happen in mm. this judgment called satinder kumar until so basically this was another order passed in this uh, in this matter where the court in a very lengthy order spoke very eloquently about this idea of bail and the considerations that play out it was dealing with a very limited issue but nevertheless this time went beyond its limited remit and it said this it said that we are at pains to note that this is what seems to happen in practice because of how broken our justice system is the delays sort of make courts think mm. that they ought to be done, like you know disposing of punishment at this stage itself which is not the idea behind bail yeah but i mean courts can say it and it's a, i mean it's a great <laughs> thing that the supreme court said it it's yeah. probably for the first time that i've read it in black and white in a judgment and mm. that's a big mm. thing but it's it is a big thing but in terms of how much it achieves is obviously we, we all know that it's not really mm. going to yeah unless there is that kind of pressure from the legislature to tell courts that that ought not to be the case yeah or a change in and, and culture more broadly yeah. sorry you know, yeah. i also want to flag one more thing gautam which some and this is another thing which surprises me when i see judges or courts the supreme court or high court for that matter uphold twin conditions 
is that you know bail and this idea of bail uh, uh, sorry bail guidelines etc the supreme court has been very jealously guarding this logic that bail in india is a discretionary exercise mm-hmm. and there shouldn't be rules that are cribbing or confining bail discretion of courts this law on twin conditions is essentially doing that right so it is a law that is telling courts that boss you don't really know what to do normally so i am telling you that you will not do what you do normally you will subject yourself to this higher threshold yeah because what you would otherwise do normally may not be good enough for these mm-hmm. kinds of instances now that that is directly undermining that judicial independence for bail that the supreme court so vociferously argues about yeah but somehow again and again i am just surprised that you know no judge or no judgment finds any problem with this mm. and this mm. obviously inevitably only happens in the matters where the state has dear interests yeah and nevertheless be it the high court or the supreme court it, this this is never seen as a judicial independence problem which is something you know that uh, chief justices and justices often talk a lot about that judicial independence is is a big thing but mm. these conditions and these clauses about bail telling you that no your your normal bail discretion is not good enough even for a constitutional court it's not good enough mm. and you should be subjected to this kind of you know legislative hand holding where i mean if you think about it in the uapa it's even worse and at, at one level maybe not if you look at it in the other way but even if if the prosecutor is telling you that the case is prima facie true on the basis of whatever material then you you don't have any discretion yeah so thinking of it from a judicial independence argument it is you know it ought to be unconstitutional from that perspective the the interpretation on 43d that the courts give and also the kind of interpretation that ed and other agencies want to confer upon these restrictive twin conditions but i mean you know it's it's quite surprising that courts don't react so angrily to those kinds of submissions yet maybe they will in the future who knows yeah and i mean it seems more to be that the courts consider themselves as part of an ongoing partnership or a project along so along with the executive executive you know like to kind of yeah make up for the broken justice system by you know dispensing punishment at at this stage um yeah but i mean sorry, i i i i thought we would discuss this case for half an hour we've gone like i think <laughs> four, four times that amount but i you know i think i think it's important um and i i you know so just like i think maybe a few takeaways i think one of course is that the reason why it took so long is because this judgment is not just a judgment about the pmla but in a certain sense is the judgment and i use the word judgment here you know in more ways than one about criminal law jurisprudence more broadly in india and just uh, how the courts have dealt with with criminal law and the you know balance of power between the individual and the state um and i think it traverses so many of those issues that it takes time to discuss them so i say that the three things i want to i want to take away from this um one is that this internal tension in this judgment right that um on the one hand you justify extremely draconian procedural requirements on the basis that this is a very serious offense money laundering it's a crime against the nation economic fabric while at the same time you to find it totally okay for any offense like you said any person can come within the ambit of the pmla 
and then lose those CRPC safeguards, right? So and and you find one. that it's not a penal act, and you find that it's a sui generis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so that's one kind of constant internal tension. But again, it's just that whatever, like heads I win, tails you lose. Whatever happens, state wins. Like you lose, basically, right? So that is there throughout this judgment. Um, the second is, as you have said, if you take the individual findings. Then it's part of this long and proud Supreme Court tradition of effacing individual rights and socioeconomic offenses. As you say in your blog post, restrictive bail conditions were first there for essential supplies law, then anti-terror laws, reverse burden, 1964, gold smuggling, Article 20 Clause 3 being read narrowly, customs officials, companies act, and so on, uh, 2G scam, cold block cases, no appeals. So if you take these individually, then it's part of this long tradition. But what is specific to the PMLA cases, and I, I, I just quote your blog here, I think it's, you know, it, it puts the point um, where, you know, it, it's um, what the PMLA does is that it weaves together all the restrictive rights facing clauses from this illustrious past into one fine blanket uh, and then goes a step further because it's not restricted to just the smuggler or the hoarder, but to practically anyone. Right. So that, that is the second really big uh, takeaway. And both one and two are really bleak. I think the third nice takeaway is that from what you said is that it, the cracks are always there. Um, and so in that way, the, the fight will continue in the high courts, you know, in the trial courts, maybe before the Supreme Court on some other day. Uh, you know, it, the, the language of law is always open textured. And so whatever the Supreme Court does, there'll always be scope. To, to carry on the fight, which the Leonard Cohen's uh, like you will uh, will keep doing. Um, so, so thanks a lot for 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 this. Um, because this took so much time, what we'll do is we'll give our reader. Uh, I'm I'm so blog oriented. We'll give our listeners a break. Uh, we'll have this as one episode, uh, and we'll we'll discuss the Zubair um, case as a different uh, standalone episode, and that should obviously take us less time and also be less burden some for our listeners so thanks to everyone yeah. for for joining us um and we'll be back very soon with um talking about uh about mohammed zubair so so thank thank you for listening to the concast the podcast about the indian constitution the Supreme Court, and beyond. This podcast is hosted by the Indian Constitutional Law and Philosophy blog, so if you liked it, do head over there and subscribe. Thank you once again, and until next time, take it easy.